vacation this week for calling upon me and giving me the opportunity to come and to share God's word with you this morning. If you have your Bible, take it and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, I know that he has started a, a series on Elijah, and so instead of taking his thunder, I'll uh, let him continue in that, and I just chose something of, on my own. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 30. As we seek to answer the question this morning, how do we live? Very simple question. How do we live? And here in these 10 verses, 21 through 30, Paul gives us the illustration and example of how we are to live uh, based on his own life in the midst of persecution and of suffering. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. Uh, I'll read them if you want to follow along, and then we'll pray again. And we will dive into our study of God's word this morning. Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for, fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Verse 27. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith in the gospel. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, again, we come before your throne and we beseech you to speak to us today through your word again god we are so grateful to have this time to come into your house to gather with your family the people of god and to be able to open up your precious and holy word and to understand your truth for us today father i pray that you would use me as your instrument for your glory father that i would be but a mouthpiece to speak your truth and Lord, we're thankful for the promises of your word that your word does not go out in vain, but it works out its perfect will in each of our lives. And so, Father, let our ears be open to hear your word. Let our minds be open to understand it and let our hearts be open and ready to receive it. And we pray that you would plant the truth of your word deep into our hearts, that we might be changed and transformed and made more like Christ. For those who hear this word today, Lord God, who are saved, let them be edified strengthened, encouraged, challenged, even convicted, Lord, and built up in their faith. And anyone here today, Father, we pray who hears this word and is not saved, we pray, Lord God, that their eyes would be opened and their hearts, Lord God, would be turned from stone to flesh and that you, Lord God, would draw them to yourself and that you would empower them this very day to repent of their sins, confess Christ as Lord of their life, and believe in their heart that you, Lord God, have raised Christ from the dead and be saved this very day. Father, most of all, we ask that all of this during our time of worship, our prayer, 
our study in your word would be pleasing to you, would bring you much glory and much honor and much praise. And we ask all these things for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi to encourage believers in their faith and remind them of their purpose. Paul finds himself here in prison as he writes this letter, which speaks to his credibility of being able to live out one's faith amid persecution and suffering. While Paul desires to deliver this letter in person, he hopes that his message will edify and strengthen believers as they continue in their faith and the work of God's kingdom. In fact, in Philippians 1, verse 7, Paul says this, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are our partakers of grace with me. While Paul's circumstances here in prison are not ideal, they are precisely the circumstances God wants for Paul, making them good. In verses 12 through 18, Paul explains how his imprisonment, his persecution, and his suffering are, are accelerating the gospel spread. Paul's example in such hardships further galvanizes his faith and the faith of other believers. And word is spreading about the treatment Christians are facing and yet their complete commitment to the gospel and to their faith in Jesus Christ. As we enter into the passage here that we'll study, Paul, in verses 19 through 20, knows that he will be delivered from this suffering in this life or in eternity. And because of this, he will not be shaken. Rather, in life or in death, his body will be used for the glory of Christ. And so again, my question for us today is, how do we live? And there are three things that we'll look at here in this passage to help us understand and to answer this question. The three things are this, Paul's dilemma, Paul's decision, and Paul's declaration. Paul's dilemma, Paul's decision, and Paul's declaration. The first one is found in verses 21 through 24. Here is Paul's dilemma, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The truth that Paul proclaims here is very simple. Life and death are both good things for the believer. Let me say that again. Life and death are both good things for the believer. And here's why. In life, we bring glory to God by exalting and magnifying Christ through our words and our deeds. In death, we will reign with Christ because of the salvation he provides through his death and his resurrection. The reason for living is Jesus Christ. The reason for living is not for good. It's not for wealth. It's not for health. It's not for fame. It's not for reputation or anything else in this world. The reason for living is Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said this in his commentary. It is the undoubted character of every good Christian that to him to live is Christ. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life. The grace of Christ, the principle of our life, and the word of Christ, the rule of our life. Why? The Christian life comes from Jesus Christ. He begins it and he ends it. And he is the ruler and sovereign over the Christian life and over all things. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The truth is this, for those who live like Christ, death will be the ultimate prize, an everlasting prize. And sadly, the same is true for an unbeliever. Death is the ultimate loss and defeat. In death, unbelievers will experience eternal torment and pain, weakness and misery. There will never be a chance for peace or for hope. But how sweet and how rewarding will be the death of those who trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. The believer will enter into everlasting peace and hope, a place where torment, pain and weakness and misery will cease to exist. What gain it will be when believers experience death, all because life was lived in Christ through salvation in him. With such a view of death, we might assume Paul was weary of life. This assumption is not the case. Look at verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. While Paul's desire to be with the Lord reigned supreme in his life, he understood the necessity for him to remain here for the benefit of the church. God was not done with Paul, just as he is not done with you or I. Paul knew, for his, Paul knew his labor for the Lord to be fruitful. He wanted his suffering and imprisonment to advance the kingdom of God in this world. The choice that lay before Paul was difficult, but a blessing. Many times in life, we have to choose between good and evil. We have to choose between easy and hard. Paul's choice is between better or best. Remain the flesh, which is good for the church and the glory of Christ, or enter into eternity with Christ. Both are good and both are a blessing, yet the struggle for Paul is still very real. Verses 23 through 24. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Again, to depart and be with Christ is the ultimate goal and prize for every Christian. Being with Christ makes a departure from this world easy and desirable. Since death is the only way in which we can be with Christ, it is the moment in life which we should long for the most. And again, that sounds contrary to the flesh. Why would we desire death? But as believers, it should be the moment we desire the most. Because in closing our eyes here in death, we open them with the Lord for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says this, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, you're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. John 12, 26 says this, If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Two great promises given to us from the Lord and from Paul that it is better to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And Jesus himself says, if anyone serves me, he will be where I am. Paul says this departure in death is far better, which means very much exceeding or vastly prefer preferable. The value of Christ far exceeds the value that this life can offer. In this life, we deal with sin and trouble, temptation, sorrow, and death. In the life to come, believers experience none of these things. 
and the life to come, there is Christ and the perfect peace and joy that He alone provides. And if Paul were to stop here, it's a no-brainer, right? Let us all depart from this life and be with Christ. That is our joy and that is our crown. Instead, Paul turns his attention to his brothers and sisters in Christ, to the church at Philippi. Paul knows that his continued living provides more benefit for their sake, not for his. The church needs to have faithful ministers of the gospel because such ministers cannot be spared when the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. As believers in Christ, we have a valid reason to depart and be with Christ. Who wouldn't want to? Which believer in their right mind wouldn't want to depart this life and be with Christ? But as long as God allows, we should work tirelessly for God's glory and for the magnification of Christ. Serving Christ in this world is temporary. So let us take full advantage of our time to serve Him and direct others to Him. Such work, while done this life, is temporary, has eternal value that brings much glory to God. Life is the path that Paul chose. Paul chose to deny himself a bit longer the satisfaction of his eternal reward to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God for the good of the church. And so here's Paul's dilemma. To live is good for the church. To die is good for me because I get to go and be with Christ, my joy and my crown. You and I have a dilemma today. Those sitting right here and those listening online have a dilemma today. For some, it's already been solved because they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So there's the dilemma is no longer now between heaven and hell. It's between live now for the glory of God or depart and be with him for all eternity. And that's a good dilemma to have because, again, we're choosing from what's better and what is best. Better being living here and advancing the gospel. Best being going home and being with the Lord. And yet there are others who are here today or listening online or wherever they may be, and they have a dilemma between heaven or hell because they've never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that we are all sinners in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Why are we sinners? Because we have broken God's law. If you don't believe me, then look at the Ten Commandments and test yourself. Have you kept them all? If you've broken even one, then you've broken God's law and you stand in judgment before Him. And the only way for sin to be dealt with is by God's judgment. And so as much as we would stand in a courtroom and a judge would declare a sentence upon us for breaking the law of man, so we must stand before the courtroom of God and stand in His presence and be judged because of our sin. Yet there is a prize here. There is a way out. God in His infinite mercy and His infinite love and His infinite grace sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world, to stand before His righteous and holy Father, to take the penalty and punishment for our sin so that death and sin would both be defeated through the cross and the grave and that you and I can be saved. And so what does it take to be saved? Simply to repent of your sins, confess Christ as Lord of your life, and believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead and you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. You don't have to get ready to be saved. You don't have to get things right to be saved. You don't have to, you don't have to get things in order to be saved. You simply have to repent, confess, and believe. And so I, along with the other brothers and sisters in Christ sitting here tonight, today, 
this morning beg you, please, trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that your dilemma is no longer between eternity away from Christ or eternity with Christ. Your dilemma now is what do I do now? I serve the Lord with a glad heart, with a joyful soul for His glory, and I look forward to the day when I will be with Him forever in heaven. This leads us to number two, Paul's decision. Paul's decision in verses 25 through 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul is no longer torn between living on in Christ or dying and gaining his return reward. He continues with confidence the mission and ministry of the gospel that God has given to him. Paul knows that God is not done with him. As long as you and I have breath in our lungs, as long as Paul had breath in our lungs, God was not done, and there is still much work to be done. We can know for sure that God is going to do what is best for his church. For Paul, that means remaining with the church and continuing to help the body of Christ grow and rejoice in the faith they have in Jesus Christ. So Paul remains to help them grow in holiness. And the more we grow in faith and joy, the more progress we make in being sanctified and made more like Jesus Christ. The church at Philippi rejoiced in being able to see Paul and visit with him. They rejoiced in being able to sit under his teaching and grow in their relationship with Christ. Yet this joy did not come from the type of man Paul was or from the type of speaker that he was. In fact, we know that Paul was not a good speaker whatsoever. He himself told us that. The church rejoices because there are men of God who rightfully and correctly and boldly proclaim his truth. That is what the church at Philippi rejoiced in Paul about. Not because of anything that he was, but because of everything that Christ was and is in him and in us. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, let us rejoice in the men that God has placed over us as faithful ministers, faithful shepherds, faithful Teachers who clearly, correctly, and boldly proclaim the truth of God's word. As Christians, all of our joy flows from and leads to Christ. And, and faithful ministers of God re reinforce our joy in Christ and encourage us to follow Christ more closely. So as much as, as Paul had a dilemma, he now makes the decision, I will remain and I'll rejoice, and I'll have to wait a little longer, but I will work faithfully to make Christ known and to help believers grow in their faith. And that's, that's our decision today. That should be our decision today. If you are here today, and, you have, and you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is now work to be done. There are the lost who need to hear about Jesus, and there are the saved who need to be discipled in their faith. And as much as newborn babies need the help of their mother and father to survive physically, so newborn believers need the help of brothers and sisters in Christ to survive spiritually. It does not mean they will not survive. Yet if we see folks get saved and we send them out to face the world on their own, then they will not grow as much as they could or should. And they will not be able to rejoice as much as they should if they have believers coming alongside them and helping them procl proclaim Christ and make him known. 
And so let our decision today be that we will work faithfully and diligently and exhaustively for the gospel. Let us make Christ known in every way to every person that we possibly can. And let us be faithful to help those coming behind us grow in their faith. That they too may be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. That they too may help lead the church in the years to come. That Christ is magnified and God is glorified. Which leads us to our final part of our answer today, Paul's declaration. So we looked at Paul's dilemma. His dilemma to be with Christ or to be here. He knows both are, are wonderful choices and wonderful decisions. And whatever God chooses, his will will be done. And yet Paul reinserts himself as staying here in the flesh so that the gospel might continue to flourish in the area and that the kingdom of God might continue to grow. Again, let me make sure that I'm clear. Paul is not saying that any of this hinges on him. If Paul were to die in this very moment of writing the book to the church at Philippi, the gospel would still go forth and the church would still continue to grow. Yet Paul knows that his life is not over. And Paul knows that his life is not done. And there is one mission given to him. That is to make the gospel known. And that is what he wants to be faithful to do. Which again leads us to our third point this morning. Paul's declaration. First in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul concludes chapter 1 with two declarations. We see the first one here in verse 27. Here it is. The first declaration is this. We must be Christ-centered in our conduct. If we profess and believe in the gospel then we should live our lives, we should live lives that are worthy of and in agreement with the gospel. Let our conduct as Christians match our belief in the gospel, submit to its laws and commands, and depend on its certain and true promises. Let me say that again. Let our conduct as Christians match our belief in the gospel. Why is that so important? Because if we are going to proclaim the gospel then we must live the gospel. The world is filled with hypocrites. All of us are hypocrites at one point in our life, if not in many points of our life. But as Christians, we must not be hypocrites in the gospel. We, no, we must not proclaim one truth and live a different truth every other time. Secondly, we must submit to its laws and commands. And as much as we submit to the laws and commands of our country and seek to obey them, so we must also, even more importantly, submit to the laws and commands of God's word. Why? First, because it brings glory to God. Because it magnifies Christ. And because it allows us to draw closer to Christ and to be made more like Him. And not only that, the commands and laws of the gospel are meant to lead us in a direction that brings about our good. It doesn't mean the whole path will be good, but it means ultimately the good will be achieved, and that good is, of course, Christ. And third and finally, depend on its certain and true promises. 
Let us live in such a way that we are dependent upon the certain and true promises of the Scriptures. You and I as human fleshly people, we're sometimes good about keeping our promises and sometimes we're ha we have to back out of them. That's the reality of the flesh. Is sometimes we, we do what we say and other times we let folks down. But there is never going to be a time in which God is going to let you down. He has promised us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And to show you the truth of that, the only person God has ever forsaken is his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Yet for his children, he will never leave you or forsake you. The Bible is filled with promises, and every one of them will come true if they have not already. How do we know that? Because if there is one promise left unfulfilled, then God is a liar. And if he is a liar, Jesus is not Savior. And if Jesus is not Savior, you and I gather in vain. And yet we believe the truth of God's word, that he is one who will keep his promises because he is God. Ephesians 4, 1 says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul here speaking, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. When my kids go over to their friend's house or they go on, on, a, on, a, on a trip with the youth or they're at a youth function or somewhere at the church or anywhere in between where they're not with us, I tell them, walk in such a way where you first honor Christ and honor us as mother and father. Why? Because that's what we want for our children. We want them to walk in a manner worthy of the name they represent. First, if they're believers, we want them to represent Christ. But they also, we also want them to represent us as their mother and father. Why? Because it brings the Lord honor. And so here is your father in heaven saying, walk worthy of me. Because I called you as my own. Paul here speaks to the man whose desire was to be with the church at Philippi in the future. He wanted to go see them. While he believed that would happen, he was not sure it would happen. Therefore, here in this letter, Paul reminded the believers that their faith is not built on his presence among them. He didn't have to be there for them to grow and fellowship and make Christ known. And the same is true for us today. Our faith is not built on pastors or shepherds. It's not built on teachers. It's not built on the place that we call the church. Our faith, our joy, our, the mercy and grace is built upon Christ alone because he is our firm and true foundation. Everyone we know will come and go, yet Christ is always near to us. And since Paul could not be with the church, he wanted to hear three things about them. So he says, let your conduct be centered in Christ. And as a result, here are the three things I want to hear about you. First is this. Paul wanted to hear that the church at Philippi was striving for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is the message of faith in Jesus Christ. It is not a religion. Let me say that again. The gospel is the message of faith in Jesus Christ. It is not a man-made religion. The message of the gospel contains the only truth for which we are to strive and the only way unto the Father, which is Christ. Now, the world would tell us differently. The world would tell us, make up your own truth. Find your own way into peace and happiness. Eternity-wise, there are many paths. Find the one that works best for you, for you. But we know, Christians, that the gospel reveals the only truth, the only way, the only life. And that is Jesus Christ. And so we, as, as the body of Christ, 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family of God, we must stand firm on the truth of the scripture and we must faithfully, courageously and boldly proclaim them in a world that will disagree with disagree with us, even persecute us, even make us suffer for believing such truth. But we must strive for the faith of the gospel. Second thing that Paul wants to hear, he wants to hear that the church at Philippi was unified. There is, more, there is nothing more dangerous to the work of the gospel and its hindrance than a church that is not unified. A church is unified, there's nothing we really can't do. The power of Christ is active and alive and well. People are being saved. The body of Christ is growing. We are furthering God's kingdom because we're all unified. We're all together. And yet you look at many churches and they're not, they're not unified. And how does this happen? Sin creeps in not from the outside, but from the inside. And so Paul wants to hear that the church at Philippi is unified. He wanted to know that they were striving together in one spirit and one mind. Church, we have a common, common enemy and it's not each other. It's Satan. So we must be unified in our efforts to battle sin and Satan to further the gospel and the kingdom of God. I encourage you, Heritage Baptist Church, always be unified. We will disagree on things. We will disagree on how things may be done. We will disagree on, on, on certain things in the church, but there are, there are foundational truths that we must not disagree on. And let us be unified in those things. And the things we disagree with, let us be humble enough to put them aside for the sake of the gospel. The third thing Paul wants to hear is that the church of Philippi was standing firm in the faith of the gospel. So he wants them to strive for the gospel. He wants them to be unified in the gospel. And he wants them to stand firm in the gospel. Standing firm in our faith is, the constant, is, the consist, is consistent with the message of the gospel. As Christians, we do not waver or concede truth in any way, in any form, in any situation. God's word is the only absolute truth. And we must plant ourselves firmly in it and not be moved. If it costs us everything, we must not be moved. If it costs us all of our friends, we must not be moved. If it costs us our job, we must not be moved. If it costs us our very life, we must not be moved from the truth of the gospel. If we are going to fight for the gospel, we must be grounded firmly in the gospel. First Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I think there's no better example of this truth being lived out in the Bible than, than our brother Job. Satan wanted to test Job, tempt him, see if he would he could draw him away from the Lord and, and God knew what was already going to happen. But yet God gave Satan permission to tempt and test Job. And so what did Satan do? Satan removed everything from him. All of his possessions, all of his riches. When that didn't work, God said that he could touch everything else except him. He couldn't take his life. And then we see, of course, his family was wiped out. Only his wife was left. The man lay in boils and sores and in frail health, his three, I guess we could say the closest friends come and see him. He's so badly marred, they don't even recognize him. 
And then they try to convince Job that he has done something wrong. They're not sure why this is happening. It must be something that Job's done wrong. In fact, his own wife said, curse God and die. And we know that Job goes through ups and downs throughout the book of Job of wondering, is it me? Is it you, God? And then God finally talks back to Job, right? He says, who, who, who do you think you are? I am God. I, I can do whatever I want. And so we see in the, very, in the finale of Job that Job remember, realizes his sin was not what caused this to happen. But he does see his sin and how he's reacted to what has happened. And of course, he asks God for forgiveness and his, his life is restored to him, not only physically, but also in everything else that he had as well. And so, brother and sister in Christ, let us stand firm. Let us strive. Let us be unified because the gospel is worth it. Christ is worth everything. The second declaration is found in verses 28 through 30. It says this, In no way alarmed of your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The second declaration that Paul makes to the church at Philippi is to be courageous and faithful in the midst of suffering. Let's be honest, none of us like to suffer. None of us could be in pain. But yet this is what we should expect to happen as believers in Jesus. We live in a world that is antithetical to the gospel. That means against. It's a fancy word for against. They hate the gospel. They hate truth. They don't want to be told there's one truth. They don't want to be told they're sinners and need a savior. And so the gospel has always had and will always have enemies. You and I, brother and sister in Christ, will always have enemies. Some will be vocal, some will be vocal, and others will not. What believers must do is stay close and faithful to the gospel we profess. We, mu we must not be frightened by the opposition we face. In fact, in the presence of God, it's much better to be the one persecuted than the one who is doing the persecuting. The way of those who oppose the gospel and persecute believers leads to destruction. The way of those who are persecuted is usually a sign of salvation. It's not a definite mark. Because we know of examples of those who face persecution and yet have renounced their faith. Our persecution and suffering are a good sign of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and our salvation. And the Holy Spirit enables us to endure such things for the sake and for the cause of Christ. So Paul reminds us here of two precious gifts that believers receive as they follow Christ. Paul doesn't want to leave you gloomed out here. He doesn't want to say you must be ready to suffer. But here are two things. Here are two gifts that we receive as we follow Christ and even suffer for his name. The first is this. We receive the faith to believe in Christ. Faith is a gift from God and comes only from him. It is not a product of anything we do, or, but everything that God has done through Jesus Christ. By his mercy and grace, God gives us faith to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved and to persevere in every way in this life. So the faith that we have in Christ is a gift from God and is strengthened as we suffer for him. Second, we can suffer for the sake of Christ. 
Suffering for Christ is a great honor and privilege. Again, let me say that. Suffering for Christ is a great honor and privilege. It doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always seem good. Yet it is a great honor and privilege for us to suffer for the sake of Christ. Why? By suffering for the sake of Christ, we bring God glory and encourage other believers to be faithful in their trust and faith in Christ. And we make the gospel known. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So while persecuting and suffering are awful and heinous and, and, and many times lead to death, it is all worth it. Our suffering and shame can only be considered a great gift for the sake of Christ if we respond to suffering and shame in a way that honors the Lord. So brother and sister in Christ, you and I are going to suffer for the sake of Christ. We live in a wonderful country where right now it's not that hard to live for Christ. But it looks like it's going to get harder much quickly than any of, you, any, any of us would really like. But how we act during the suffering and how we act during the persecution that will most likely come for us tells a lot about who we are in Christ. In fact, this is what he says in verse 30. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul suffered for the sake of Christ. And yet what was his response? More glory for God. More gospel to be known. In fact, when he was in the uh, Philippian jail and the, the doors broke open and the Philippian jailer thought that everyone had escaped, what did Paul tell them? No, we are still here. And the Philippian jailer comes in and falls down at the, at the feet of Paul and says, what must I do to what? To be saved. If Paul would have ran those doors open, that never would have happened. And yet Paul knew he was there for a reason. And Paul saw exactly what God was going to do as this jailer was saved and his whole family turned to Christ. Matthew Henry said this, It is not simply the suffering, but the cause. And not only the cause, but the spirit that makes a martyr. People may suffer for a bad cause, and then they will suffer justly. There are lots of religions today that say you must suffer. And if you suffer well, you'll be rewarded in heaven, in their heaven. But that is not the truth of the gospel. We must suffer well because we are Christians. And because just as Christ suffered, we will also suffer. And we don't go to heaven because of our suffering, because we've done well in our suffering. We go to heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and through the grave. And because of what he's done for us, we suffer all the more joyfully. And so Matthew Henry concludes, or they may suffer for a good cause, but with the wrong heart. And then their sufferings lose their value. When you suffer for the Lord, there is value and treasure stored up in heaven that you will only see in the day that you join Christ in heaven. And, and, and what a goal it should be for us to store up as many treasures in heaven as we can 
Because the beauty of it is that when we get to heaven, we won't keep those treasures for ourselves. We'll give them back to the Lord. We will take them before his throne and we will give them as an offering of praise to the Lord. And so how do we live? Well, this morning we've looked at Paul's dilemma. We've looked at Paul's decision and we've looked at Paul's declaration. As we come to a close, the praise band will come up, the worship team will come up and get ready for our closing song. But I want to leave you with this. How do we live? It's very simple. We live like Christ. You may be thinking, well, why didn't you say that to begin with? And we could have been out here already. Because we know that. I didn't need to tell you that to know that. We all know that we must live like Christ. But every day, you and I struggle in some way to actively do that. And so we live like Christ. As Christians, we long for the eternal reward with Christ while striving to bring glory to God and further His kingdom. As Christians, we welcome persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ, knowing that it will be used for the good of the church and the glory of God. As Christians, we live like Christ because Christ is worth it. And our eternal reward in Him far exceeds the good and bad of this life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, family of God, live for Christ. And don't ever fear death. For through death, we gain our eternal, our eternal and ultimate reward. And that reward is Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Lord in heaven, we are so very thankful that Jesus Christ is our eternal reward. And that he is more valuable and he is worth more than any amount of money or possessions, worth more than any precious jewel. He is worth more than even creation itself, and yet He, you, Lord Jesus, is what we'll gain when we come into your presence and live with you forever. And so, Father, let us, as children of God, see every cost worth it. See every pain worth it. See every persecution worth it. See every suffering worth it that we will live for Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, I pray they have heard the gospel clearly proclaimed. And I pray, Lord God, that right now you would draw them to yourself. That they would realize their sin and their need for Christ and they would be empowered by your Spirit this very moment to repent of their sins, confess Christ as Lord of their life, and believe in their heart that you, Lord God, have raised Christ from the dead and be saved. Father, we love you. And we thank you, Father, for the beautiful gift of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the mercy and the grace and the love which you have lavished upon us from the cross, from the grave, and even now into eternity. Lord, be glorified as we leave this place here in a few moments that we would live for Christ. And we ask all these things for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.